Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, listeners. This week's episode follows straight on from last week's, so no introduction is necessary. Underwood and Flinch Season 4 Underground Written and performed for podcast by Mike Bennett This podcast is intended for an adult audience Episode 4 Damo lay on his back in Rose's king-sized bed She lay beside him cradled in the crook of his arm, her hair damp and smelling of shampoo he'd retrieved from a cobwebby corner of the bathroom. He turned his face to her hair now and breathed in the fragrance. Your hair smells lush, Rose. Why don't you wash it more often? Why bother, she replied. I have no friends or colleagues to maintain appearances for. No one loves me. No one cares about me. No one even sees me. Not really. It's like I don't exist. And that's fine. It's how I've evolved. Yeah, but it's nice to look your best, isn't it? Especially when your best is as good as yours is. She smiled and stroked her fingers through his chest hair. (laughs) You're very kind. But you have to say that. You're in my bed. I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it, but... What was that you were saying about not having any friends? Is that really true? Of course. Where would I make friends? I had friends when I was human back in Germany, and here too, during the war. In the underground, I made many friends. I was a regular part of the entertainments at Aldwich. What? The station below us? Don't tell me you were a busker. (laughs) No. She slapped his chest in playful admonition. You know about the Blitz, don't you? Oh, yeah, obviously. Everyone knows about that. But not about the entertainments. He shook his head. No. Rose rolled over so she was facing him and rested her chin on her hand. Okay, so, during the war, people came down into the underground to shelter from the bombings. It was 1940, and night after night the bombs rained down on London. The government was against people using the tubes for shelter at first because they thought they would never go back up again. They wanted people to shelter in stupid holes they dug in their back gardens and covered with corrugated iron, or in specially dug shallow shelters in the parks. But these places were useless. People needed deep shelter. And so, since they were ultimately powerless to stop people, the government let it happen. They approved a number of stations for the purpose of shelter, and Aldwych was one of them. It is at the end of a short stub of track, branching off from the Piccadilly line, all on its own. It had never been a busy station, and so in the war they completely converted it for the purposes of shelter. And not just for people, either, but also for art treasures and relics from galleries and museums. Damo raised his eyebrows. Really? 
Oh, yes. From the British Museum alone, there were hundreds of crates of relics containing things like Egyptian mummies and the Elgin marbles from ancient Greece. These things were locked up in the disused Eastern Tunnel, while the sheltering Londoners slept in the Western Tunnel, going out towards Holborn. It was top secret, of course. No one ever knew about it. But uh, you knew about it, right? Oh, yes. We knew everything. The station was like a part of our home. Oh, the Aldwych shelter was hugely popular. There were washing and lavatory facilities, a canteen and catering, a library, and there were games and entertainments too. Educational lectures, performances of Shakespeare, singers, comedians, all kinds of musicians. Uh, you've heard of George Formby, yes? The ukulele fella sang about cleaning windows. Yes, this is him. He played down here, as did many others. Ah, uh, it was wonderful. And you were a singer, right? Yes. I sang the popular songs of the day. Songs from the movies and also patriotic songs, like We'll Meet Again. In a German accent. She laughed. <laughs> no, I sing in a perfect English accent, or an American one, whichever is appropriate for the song. But people knew that I was a German, a refugee from the Nazis. Oh, they were very kind and supportive. And so you drank their blood. Damo winked at her to show he was joking. She slapped his chest. Oh, Damien, you are terrible. I'm only kidding you, Rose. Uh, come here to me now. You told me that it was Underwood who took you away from Germany, right? So how did you come to meet him in the first place? Oh, it was back in the twenties. He was living in Berlin, not permanently. He divided his time between there and Paris, London, New York, wherever there was fun to be had. The Roaring Twenties, they called him. And Daniel was certainly roaring. Yeah, I've seen him dancing. He's quite the party boy, isn't he? Yes, he came to the club I was working in at the time, the catacomb. He told me he was bewitched by me. <laughs> she chuckled. But it's fair to say that it was I who was bewitched by him. I remember the first night he came, his eyes out there in the smoky darkness of the audience. He drew me to him. Not in the way of fascination, but uh, simply an allure. I could not resist. That night we became lovers, and our affair began. It wasn't long before he told me that he wanted me to become his vampire bride, that we might be together forever. But I would not do it. I let him feed from me, and it was heavenly— Sex with a vampire, when the ecstasy of his bite is in your veins. Oh, it is something out of this world. But I didn't want to leave this world, the world of the living. I loved him terribly, but my family, you understand? My mother, my father, my sister, my friends. I didn't want to leave them all to become a creature of the night, watching from the shadows of their lives as they grew old, withered and died. I wanted to live and to be with them all in the sunlight. <laughs> yeah, said Damo. Tell me about it. Rose frowned. I am telling you about it. Damo smiled. Ah, no, it's an expression, Rose. Telling me about it means I understand what you mean because it's happened to me too. You know, I, I've been there, so to speak. Ah, you mean that you have felt this way recently, eh? About your family and friends. He nodded. Of course you have. It is only natural. She stroked his cheek. Please, he caught her hand and kissed it. Go on with your story. Okay, so, Daniel, he persisted in his attempts to convert me, but... I could not be persuaded, and so, one night, he was gone, just like that. I remember looking out from the stage to his table, waiting for him to appear. He always sat at the same table with Charlie, Arthur Flinch's father, and afterwards he would always come to my dressing room. She smiled at the memory. 
Sometimes he'd be so aroused by my performances that we'd make love right there on the dressing table, loudly and joyously. But we did not care. Nobody did. From the other dressing rooms, my friends would cheer their approval. Ah, oh, it was Berlin in the twenties, before it all went to shit. So what? He left you then? Hmm? She turned to him from where she gazed up and into the past. Oh, yes. I came back to my dressing room, not to my ever-ardent lover, but to a bouquet of flowers he'd had sent over, along with a note explaining that he couldn't bear to go on with things the way they were. He had left Berlin for Paris, and that was the end of it. I was devastated. I've wept for I don't know how long, but I got over it, as one does. The twenties came to an end, and then the thirties, and the rise of the Nazis. She shook her head. Ah, oh, Damien, it was a dark time. More and more brown shirts on the streets, red and black flags, Marches, rallies, fights with the communists, the social democrats, and anyone else who opposed them. They hated us, too. Artists, intellectuals, advocates of freedom of ideas, of sexuality. But most of all, they hated the Jews. My father was a tailor by trade. He was also Jewish, but had no religious feeling at all. He was an atheist. So he was not constrained by religious credo when it came to love. He fell in love with and married my mother, who was evangelish, a, a Protestant. He was a wise man. He could see the way things were going and knew that if the Nazis found out that he was of Jewish descent, there would be trouble for us. He contacted a cousin of his in Switzerland, and they began to make plans to get us out of Germany. He, my mother, and Lottie, my younger sister. But I, I was a fool. I didn't want to go with them. I trusted that sanity would somehow prevail, that the Nazis would not, could not, endure in a sane, civilized country such as ours. Even when Hitler became Chancellor, Hindenburg was still president— he had no genuine sympathy with the Nazi cause. He was just using Hitler to secure his position. He would muzzle the dog and in time put it down. But of course, this is not how things turned out. My mother, Rose's voice, faltered for a moment. She would not leave without me. She implored me to come with them, but I would not. I was naive, selfish, stupid. So fucking stupid. And then another man became bewitched by me. Major Ernst Reimer of the SS. He made his feelings known to me, but I was repulsed by him, and I made the mistake of saying so. He investigated my background and quickly learned of my father's and my Jewish blood. He and his men went to my parents' house and took away their passports, told them that they were not allowed to leave Germany. But there was nothing to fear. It was just new government policy. And then he came to me. He showed me their passports and told me, as he had told them, that they had nothing to fear. But then he added the caveat that their safety was entirely dependent on my becoming his mistress. She stared up at the ceiling, where a large black spider sat in an ancient, dusty web. What could I do? I submitted to him. She put her hand over her face as a wave of painful memory swept through her. We were his prisoners. I had no choice. Reimer could do whatever he wanted with me, and there was nothing I could do, no one to whom I could turn. But then I remembered the sect. 
Daniel's private network of Satanists and occultists. Maybe they could help me. Occultism was very popular in Berlin at that time. There were lots of circles and movements, and many of the devotees of these groups were rich or powerful people, including many top Nazis, Hitler and Himmler among them. But they weren't in the sect, thank God. Of course, I had no idea who among the sect might now be Nazis. After all, if the Nazis weren't the devil's own army, who was? But the sect were my only hope. There was one man in particular that Daniel thought very highly of, a magistrate called Dieter March. I'd met him on more than one occasion and was confident that he liked me, so I contacted him and arranged an appointment. When I went and I was admitted to his chamber, I saw that he wore a Nazi armband. My heart sank. But I went ahead with my prepared opening anyway. I told him I had lost my address book and so lost contact with Lord Underwood and that I wished to write to him. He looked at me quizzically and asked why. I told him that it was a personal matter. He smiled, and he said that he would pass the news on to Lord Underwood whenever he next saw him. It was all very polite, but very guarded. Neither of us fully trusted the other, you understand? So I decided I had to sound him out on his feelings about the Nazis. It would either move the conversation forward, or it would end it. On his wall there were pictures of President Hindenburg and Chancellor Hitler. I commented that Hitler had made such incredible changes in Germany. It was a neutral enough remark, and I could, if necessary, expostulate on the man's greatness. But it was not necessary. Dieter agreed, but his eyes flitted from mine when he said it. So then I asked him how Daniel felt about the Chancellor— this time he looked at me carefully through the smoke that drifted from his cigarette and said, Lord Underwood is a foreigner, of course, so we have to forgive him for thinking Herr Hitler strutting. Well, I cannot say, but suffice it to say that his lordship is not impressed. So I asked him, And what of the sect? What is their policy? Cautiously he said, Frau Schroeder, you know I cannot discuss such things with outsiders. I told him then that Daniel had made me a member of the sect privately, but that I could not attend gatherings because I was still in love with him, and that to see him in person in that context would be difficult and embarrassing for us both. But to prove my credentials, I made the sign of the sect, and to this Dieter smiled. Very good. He said, I'm sorry that your love for his lordship keeps you away from him, but I understand. And then he told me everything. He hated the Nazis, but like so many, he had to go along with the new status quo if he wanted to maintain his position. Then I told him about the awful positions that I and my family were in. He listened attentively to my story, then got up and walked to his window. Looking out into the rain, he told me that Daniel had been in Berlin just last month to have Dieter organize a flight for him to Rio de Janeiro. He was flying out on the Graf Zeppelin. It was the wonder of the age, and apparently Underwood was keen to experience it. Well, I was stung to hear that he had been in town and not made any attempt to contact me, but I said nothing. I asked Dieter if he was likely to see him again any time soon. He turned to me and said, Frau Schroeder, I believe his lordship may still have feelings for you. I may be able to help you and your family, but I cannot guarantee that Lord Underwood himself will wish to be involved. I told him I understood, and then I took out a letter I had written to Daniel in which I basically begged him to come to me. He took the letter and said he would forward it to him immediately. He then asked to where he should send any reply, to which I replied, He knows where to find me. Two weeks passed, and then, 
one night as I stepped out onto the stage. He was there again, back at his table with Charlie at his side. She wiped away a tear. I was so overcome with joy, I almost couldn't perform. I just wanted to run to him, to run away, out of the club, out of Germany, and far, far away from the likes of Reimer, the fat Nazi bastard who sat leering at me from his table at the front. But, of course, I had to constrain myself. I did not know yet what Daniel had to say. After the show, I waited, nervous and excited for Daniel to come to my dressing-room. Instead, Reimer entered, as was his manner, without so much as a polite cough. His hands were all over me when the knock came upon my door. Reimer told the intruder to go away. A voice announced champagne for Frau Schroeder. Oh, that changed his mind. He released me and went to the door, opening it with an imperious flourish. Almost immediately the stiffness left his shoulders, and he seemed to wilt slightly. Then he was walking backwards into the room to reveal Daniel outside, smiling and with the promised champagne in an ice bucket. "'Is this man bothering you, Frau Schroeder?' he said. Oh, more than you could ever know, I replied, and then I ran to his arms and wept my heart out. He held me and apologized over and over again for leaving me. If he hadn't gone when he had, he said, none of this would have happened. But I told him he was wrong to chastise himself. He could not have stopped the rise of the Nazis. He said he could have killed Hitler long ago, and perhaps he was right, but, but this was no time to talk about what could have been. He sat me down and called to Charlie and Dieter to join us from where they stood outside. Then he explained to me what his plans were. The Graf Zeppelin was leaving Germany tomorrow evening, and he wanted me to come with him to Rio, where we could begin a new life together. I would be one of two volunteer blood donors that would sustain him on the flight. But what of my family? I asked. I cannot leave them. Dieter explained how, since our meeting when I told of my father's cousin in Switzerland, he had made plans for their escape. But we would have to get their passports back. Daniel said this was where he came in. He would take Reimer to retrieve the passports immediately. He then added, with what I knew was chivalrous reluctance, that if I preferred to go with my family, I could. Well, of course I wanted to do both, but I could only do one. Much as I loved my family, I had lost Daniel once before. I wasn't going to lose him again. I told him that I would go with him. He was delighted. He left with Reimer immediately. They went back to Reimer's house, where he retrieved my family's passports, and then he wiped Reimer's memory, not just of the evening's events, but of me completely. He met us later at Dieter's home, where Dieter had also presented me with my new passport and travel papers. I was now Lady Underwood. I was to travel with Daniel as his wife. Then Dieter left, and Charlie drove us to Underwood's apartment across town. He had a top-floor apartment in a building in the Kurfürstendamm, complete with a windowless attic that had been converted and furnished as his bedroom. We were all of us exhausted and slept through the morning, and then, in the afternoon, we drove to the airport and took a charter flight to the Zeppelin aerodrome at Friedrichshafen. It was a wet day, and the sky was thick with clouds. Daniel didn't need protection, but he still had to pack it for use at the other end. Protection? asked Damo. What was that? A protection against the sun's rays. He used to wear gloves and a mask and dark glasses. The mask was a kind of grey hood that covered his head. It was conspicuous, but could be mostly concealed by the rim of a hat the dark glasses and the turning up of a raincoat collar. Well, so we used to go out in the daytime dressed up like the elephant man. Rose frowned. What is this? Damo smiled. It doesn't matter. Go on. 
When we landed at Friedrichshafen, it was pouring with rain. When we landed at Friedrichshafen, it was pouring with rain. The sun was below the horizon and the sky was prematurely dark with heavy clouds. We've walked under umbrellas through the sheeting rain to the Zeppelin hangar. It was such a vast building, unlike anything I'd ever seen before. But it paled into insignificance as the magnificent airship within was slowly tracked out into the searchlights that swept back and forth across its beautiful silver body. And then, on the tail fins, the newly added swastikas, a reminder of just how much power the Nazis now held in Germany. But this was only a passing thought at the time. I was too excited to be leaving and too awestruck by the gigantic aircraft to be overly concerned by this stupid, hateful flag. As we approached the passengers waiting at the gangway, we saw Dieter with a woman I'd never seen before. He introduced her as Marianne. She was to be Daniel's other blood donor. She was sect, of course, a widow whose husband had been killed in the war. She hated the Nazis and wanted to get out to start a new life in Brazil. The sect had arranged this, and for appearance's sake on the journey, she would be Charlie's wife. They would share a cabin together, just as Daniel and I would. She was nice. I'm sure Charlie thought so too, as when he saw her he couldn't wipe the smile off his face. I suppose... In the timeline of things, it must have been about now that Reimer was starting to wonder to whom the underwear belonged that he had stolen from me and hoarded in his home, or who the woman was in the photographs that he had of me and him together, and, of course, why he had so many receipts from the catacomb club in his pockets. Whatever it was, something made him put two and two together— I don't believe he ever had any memory of my parents, thank God, because they made it out to Switzerland. But there was a woman-shaped hole in his memory, and he wanted to fill it with answers. However, at the time this was not an issue for us. We were drifting up into the sky and leaving it all behind. We drank champagne as we rose, silently and incredibly quickly, up into the sky— the gigantic hangar shrank to the size of a shoebox in what seemed only moments, and then we were up in the clouds. Daniel slipped his arm around my waist and asked me how I was feeling. He called me Milady. <laughs> and maybe it was just the champagne, but a shiver of pleasure went through me. I loved him so much at that moment. I'd never stopped loving him, but right then as we were finally safe. I think I would have done anything for him. After meeting the crew of the gondola, a tour of the airship and some more drinks, we went to our cabin. The rooms were very small and we had bunk beds. Can you believe it? She laughed. We argued playfully about which of us was going to be on top, and I won. But we weren't interested in sleeping at that moment. Once the joking was over... Daniel put his arms around me, and we kissed. We kissed like the long-lost lovers we were. She smiled at Damo. I will spare you the details, Damien, but it's enough to say that we made love on that tiny lower bunk. It was uncomfortable, and we both sustained bruises and bumps all over our bodies. But it was blissful, and he fed from me. He drank deep and my climax came at the height of the ecstasy caused by his bite. The result then and always was unbelievable. Damo pushed himself up onto his elbow. What? Are you saying he was better than me? She laughed and cupped his cheek in her hand. <laughs> you do not have this skill yet, my dear, but I will teach you, and then I've no doubt you will surpass him by miles. Well, so you mean I bite you and drink your blood while we're on the job? Yes, and I you. Jesus, doesn't that get a bit messy? Hang on a minute, is that why these sheets are black? She laughed. <laughs> oh, Damien, I told you there are no vampires in London, so I can have no vampire lovers. But yes, the sheets are black to conceal bloodstains. Damo made a face. <laughs> 
Oh, really? Yes, really. Of course there are bloodstains on my sheets. Old stains, of course, and washed since they were made. I can't sleep in the smell of rotting blood. Well, that's a relief. Yes, quite. But, as I'm sure you will learn very soon, spilling blood is unavoidable if you bring a victim to your bed. You can't make the omelette without breaking the eggs. And uh, how often do these omelettes of yours actually result in dead bodies? Occasionally, and only when the man deserves it. And so what happens to them then? As they go to the bottom of the house. Here we have an oven for corpse disposal. Many of Underwood's homes have an oven for this purpose. He evolved a system. Christ, said Damo, he really is a killer machine, isn't he? He is good at what he does, but so am I. And so will you be. Damo scratched his head doubtfully. Yeah, well, I, I don't know about that, Rose. You will, Damien. You will because you must. I told you before there is no going back. Damo managed a wan smile. Yeah, thanks for the reminder. Rose leaned forward and kissed his chest. But anyway, back to my story, yes? He nodded. So, after Underwood had fed, I was woozy and needed to eat. I remember, as we got dressed, we had to put on the special slippers that they give you on the airship. Regulation, low-friction footwear. Why? Was the possibility of sparks. Remember, we were floating under a massive hydrogen-filled balloon. I don't think I've ever seen shoes spark. Well, modern shoes are made differently, Damien. In those days, the soles of the shoe were nailed to the uppers, and the Zeppelin company took no chances. Anyway, we went on to the dining room. The food was exquisite. Charlie, Marianne and I ate like kings and queens, while Daniel would content himself with iced water or wine. It was, for the most part, a wonderful trip. Daniel would feed from myself or Marianne on alternate nights. I admit I was a trifle jealous when he drank from Marianne, and I used to stay with them, ostensibly to ensure that he didn't take too much, but also because, well, I was in love, you understand. Sure. And so, the journey across the Atlantic progressed without incident. One highlight I remember was when we passed over a beautiful ocean liner. The captain took us down low so we could see the passengers and they could see us. We waved at each other like children. It was so funny. I remember also feeling delighted as we effortlessly overtook them and left them behind. Like in the race, she waved sadly. Bye-bye. Damo chuckled. So long, suckers. Yes, it was like this. Rose laughed for a moment, and then her smile faded. And then it was the night of the storm. We could see it ahead, big cumulus nimbus clouds, the colour of livid bruises, flashing with the electricity inside them. I was scared, but the zeppelin simply rose above them. The storm raged beneath us for miles. We looked down on it as the night drew in. So strange to see a storm from above and not below. Anyway, it was my turn to feed Daniel. We were in our cabin, lost in each other, aware of nothing outside ourselves. Even when the men came in, at first we did not notice them. They must have been listening at the door before entering. For us to be making love was to them an advantage, and the room was dimly lit. They did not see the blood at my neck, not at first, anyway. There were two of them, Dorfman and a steward. Dorfman was the ship's security chief. We'd been introduced shortly after coming aboard. It had been reported in the press that, since taking the swastika livery, the Zeppelin company had received threats from so-called anti-Nazi terrorists threatening to blow up the Graf Zeppelin. The captain introduced the passengers to Dorfman as a means of putting us all at our ease. When I saw the man coming into the room, my first thought was that he had come to tell us to keep the noise down or something. 
but then I saw both Dorfman and the steward had daggers in their hands. I called Daniel's name, but Dorfman had the knife in his back before he could even turn around. He was a professional. He thrust the knife upward at just the right angle to pierce Daniel's heart. But rather than dropping dead on top of me, as Dorfman had expected, Daniel whirled upon him, his teeth bared, his mouth and chin crimsoned with my blood. I saw Dorfman's face fall. His knife was still in Daniel's back. But the other man now rushed forward, bringing his knife down in an arc. Daniel caught his wrist and snapped it like a twig. The man screamed, but it was cut off as Daniel yanked his broken arm down with terrific force and brought his knee up to connect with the man's face. Dorfman just stared, terrified. Daniel was about to deal with him when I managed to call to him. He turned to see that I was still bleeding from where he had broken off his bite. He hadn't closed the wound, and his teeth had been in my jugular vein. Blood was pouring out of me. I tried to staunch it with my hands, but it was hopeless. I was dying. In an instant he was there, his mouth over the wound and closing it. Then I saw hands flash down in front of his face, and his head was pulled back, a line opening in his neck as the wire bit into his flesh. It was Dorfman. He'd had a garrote hidden in his wristwatch. He was dragging Daniel backwards to where only a few feet away he bumped into the opposite wall of the tiny cabin. They were so close, but I was so weak they might as well have been a mile away. Daniel's fingers were clawing at his neck, trying to find the wire as blood now began to ooze from the wound. His face was terrible. I, I tried to scream, to call for help, but I had no voice. I sat up, soaked in blood, and reached for Dorfman, but I fell to the floor. I was dying, I think. My hands were almost numb. And then I saw the other dagger, the one the steward had dropped when Daniel broke his arm. I managed to pick it up, and finding a last reserve of strength, I stabbed Dorfman in the leg. The blade went into the meat of his calf muscle, and I heard him scream. The sound of his pain girded me on. I twisted the knife and pulled it down. I knew there was an artery in there somewhere, and I did my damnedest to find it. But then Dorfman's leg was ripped away from me. I heard a crunching sound above, as of many bones breaking, and then his body fell to my side, and I saw his neck had been crushed. Daniel's finger impressions were deep in the flesh. And then Daniel was there. He gathered me in his arms and said, Rose, you're dying, my love. I can save you, but... I stopped his lips with my finger, and in a voice that was little more than a whisper, I managed to choke. Are you asking me to marry you again? And he smiled and replied, Yes, darling, will you? I nodded, and then he bit into his wrist. The blood flowed, and he put the wound to my lips. I had no sense of taste or even feeling, but I swallowed and kept swallowing until consciousness slipped away from me. When I awoke, I was washed and dressed in clean clothes. The cabin was cleaned and bed linen all changed. The walls that had been sprayed with blood were now as good as new, and I also felt good as new. No, better. Healthy certainly does not do it justice. I was more than healthy. I was changed. Daniel sat on a chair near the door. Hello, sleepyhead, he said. Welcome back to the land of the living. Am I living? I asked. Oh, yes, he replied, coming over to kiss me. More living than anyone else on this airship. Other than me, of course. <laughs> then he told me what had happened after I passed out. First of all, this was not our original cabin. That explains the amazing clean-up job. He told me that he'd slapped the steward back into wakefulness and fascinated the truth out of him as to what had happened. 
Apparently, Reimer had finally put it all together and had wired the Graf Zeppelin to speak with Dorfman. Dorfman was in fact SS, as was his colleague, who had been undercover, as it were, in the guise of this steward. This made it possible for him to listen in on private conversations as he went about waiting on the passengers. Anyway, Dorfman was given the order to assassinate us before we reached Rio de Janeiro. Enemies of the Fatherland and so on. They knew that Charlie and Marianne were travelling with us, but as we neared the coast of Rio de Janeiro, our companions were enjoying a musical performance in the main lounge. The assassins had decided to kill Daniel and me first, and then to do away with Charlie and Marianne later. Once Daniel had all he needed from the steward, he made a swift but typically unpleasant plan to cover his tracks. With the steward still deeply under his fascination, he instructed him to write a suicide note that explained how he and Dorfman had secretly been lovers. The Nazis saw homosexuality as a subhuman aberration. In his letter, the steward explained how, during a routine clandestine search of our cabin, Dorfman had told him that it was over between them. The steward had taken it badly. A terrible fight had ended with the steward murdering Dorfman, and then, overcome with grief, he decided to take his own life. Daniel left the steward in the cabin as he carried me next door into Charlie and Marianne's cabin. They came back after the musical performance and helped him get things as he wanted them. Once Daniel was dressed and as immaculate as ever, he went back to our cabin and gave the steward his final instructions. Then he went into the lounge and started chatting with some of the other passengers before a few moments later the steward came running in with his clothes covered in blood. Everyone was horrified as he ran straight over to the viewing windows, opened one up, and with a final cry of Heil Hitler, threw himself out. Daniel and some other men ran to the windows, but he had disappeared into the flashing storm clouds below. There was, of course, shock and general pandemonium, but once Daniel returned to his cabin and discovered the scene of the murder, it all fell into place for them. "'Jesus!' said Damo. "'I'd never heard anything about that. "'You think it'd be famous?' "'The Nazis had it covered up, "'and the Zeppelin Company were more than happy to do the same. "'After that, they changed the design of the window "'so that no one else could put them to such use again. "'But what about Reimer?' asked Damo. "'He must have said something. "'I don't think so. "'If he did, there were no consequences for us.' Well, yeah, I suppose when you think about it, he would have had to admit to involvement in a pretty uncool mess in Nazi terms. This is true, yes. But, anyway, the next morning we were awakened by a call to all passengers that we were approaching the Bay of Rio de Janeiro. I remember the glow of daylight around the curtain at the window, and the sense of fear I felt, a very clear warning of danger. Daniel got up and, with a gloved hand, cautiously lifted the edge of the curtain. He said it was all right. The sun was above the balloon, and the gondola completely in shadow. It was distressing, the full realisation that sunlight, something I had always cherished and taken for granted, was now as poison to me. He told me that Charlie had a spare mask, dark glasses and gloves that I could wear when we disembarked. It was a grotesque thought, but he laughed my concerns away. "'People can stare all they like, Rose,' he said. "'We are rich. We can be as eccentric as we please. We are fragile Europeans, sensitive to the powerful South American sun. The first thing you have to learn, darling, is that the rich don't give a fig for what the poor think. Walk tall, walk proud, and if they stare, to hell with them. And so we did. <laughs> she laughed. I went to join him at the window, and together in each other's arms we looked down at the bay. It was an amazing sight. People today think nothing of flying. It is so commonplace for them. But back then, passenger flight was a new and incredible experience, and looking down on the world, another part of the world completely foreign to me, 
I was filled with awe and delight. Below us was the bay, filled with little boats and ocean liners, so tiny like children's toys, while up almost level with us on one of the mountains cradling the bay was the recently erected statue of Christ the Redeemer, Jesus standing with his arms outstretched to us as if in welcome. Ironic, I suppose, the Son of God welcoming vampires. But I didn't see it that way at the time. I was so newly turned that my feelings were still very human. I saw no irony, only salvation from the evil of the Nazis. Then the airship was flying over the city, its huge shadow gliding over the buildings, and everywhere below people were pointing up at us and waving. It was such a magical moment. Then Daniel turned to me, and we kissed. We were together, we were free, and we literally had eternity stretching out before us. She sighed quietly. Uh, but as you know, things between us did not last quite that long. We stayed in Rio for two months, and then flew to New York, where we lived in his apartment overlooking Central Park. The following year, Hindenburg died, and Hitler appointed himself Führer. Daniel wanted to go back to Germany to experience the Third Reich for himself, but I would not let him. And then, when Hitler lent support to Franco in the Spanish Civil War, Daniel wanted to go to Spain to see how their blitzkrieg tactics worked. But again, I kept him close to me. It wasn't until Chamberlain declared war on Germany that he absolutely insisted we return to London, and this time I was powerless to prevent him. And so we left our happy life in New York and returned to London. At first it was not so bad, but gradually the privations of war started to erode at the quality of life there, and then, of course, the air raids began. Underwood wanted to get over to the continent and into the thick of the fighting, but he was my husband, and I couldn't, wouldn't let him go. We fought often about it, and on one occasion, we were in the East End, I remember, We'd been to a grotty little music hall where a supposedly amazing mesmerist was performing. Daniel had suspected that he might be a vampire, but he wasn't. Anyway, we were returning home when the air raid sirens began. Always this was the cue for him to make his case as to why he had to go away and fight, and my cue to deny him again. People around us began to flock down into the shelters, but... We were deaf and blind to everything other than our stupid row. And then, suddenly, the bombs began to rain down, not miles away, but right where we were. It was terrifying. We ran for our lives as buildings were blown apart around us, debris flying everywhere, bricks, glass, timber... My stupid heel broke and I tripped and fell. I screamed after him through the deafening explosions for help. He heard me, and thank God he came back, because the wall of a burning warehouse collapsed right where he had been standing. He reached me and closed me protectively in his arms. I tried to move us, but I held him fast. I was too afraid to move. It seemed that no one spot was any safer than another. And this was as good a place to die as any. So we stayed there, crouching in each other's arms as the fires raged all around us, until finally the explosions began to move away. I clung to him, weeping and begging him, Please, don't leave me here, Daniel. Don't leave me. She turned her face away from Damo and took a deep, unsteady breath. He lay a hand on her shoulder, and she closed her hand over his. "'I'm all right,' she said. "'I'm all right.' And after another deep breath, she continued. "'I wasn't the same after that. I suppose I had some form of shell-shock or post-traumatic stress. Call it what you will. I only know I did not feel safe above ground.' And even though our home here is underground and quite bomb-proof, I had to be down there, 
deeper underground in the station. But it was more than just the bombs. I felt, how can I say, unpopular in my own home. Daniel wanted nothing more than to go to war, to do his bit, he used to say. And Arthur, that fucking weasel, he'd inherited Charlie's role by now and wanted to prove himself or something. Or maybe he just wanted to get Daniel away from me so he could have him all to himself. Who can know the mind of such a man as this? Anyway, one night I was in the station. I was always in the station by now. And Daniel came down to see me, to tell me he was going, and that was an end to it. I was tired of fighting him. He knew what I felt, and I was sick to death of telling him. So I put on the brave face, gave him my blessing, and kissed him goodbye. He thanked me, held me, swore to me he'd be home by Christmas, but I never saw him again. Damo lay beside her, waiting for her to continue. Then he realised she had said all she was going to say. He put his arms around her, as softly and quietly she started to cry. And so, for Damo and Rose, now sleep comes down. When they awake, there will be hunger. And when there is hunger, there will be blood. Join me next time as the saga of Underwood and Flinch continues. The music you're listening to is Ahmad Armour by Farid Farjad courtesy of Taranay Records and our good friend Fawaz Al-Maloud. You can stream or buy the track from all the usual sources, Amazon, Spotify, Deezer, YouTube Music, everywhere. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Season 4, Episode 4, and I hope it tickled your fancy. Always nice to get a bit more of Underwood's backstory, isn't it? Uh, what he got up to back in the old days and the older days and the very old days before the old days, long before we met him. It's been a long episode and I don't have any news for you this week, so I'm going to let you go early. (laughs) All I will say is that this episode, season four, episode four, corresponds to episode 17 of Underwood and Flinch Underground on Patreon. So if you can't wait for the next episode and you uh, want to go and sign up at Patreon, uh, then if you want to find your place there, you need to start at episode 18, Underwood and Flinch Underground episode 18. And that's about it. So uh, have a fantastic week, ladies and gentlemen, and I'll be back in your ears in seven days' time. Seven sleeps till we meet again. Thanks very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Have a great week. Uh, And so until the moon rises again over Underwood and Flinch, take care and farewell.